the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, the Honorable Bill Graham, PC, QC, CM, LLD, Honorary Colonel of the Governor General's Horse Guards, former Minister of National Defense. I had that wonderful experience of being Defense Minister of this country and working with the men and women of our armed forces, and it's just an extraordinary privilege to travel and work for those people, whether they were in Afghanistan or whether it was in Suffolk or whether it was in Wainwright or whether it was up north in the Arctic or whether it was on ships out of Victoria or out of Halifax. This is an unbelievable asset that our country has. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I do feel that I need to draw attention to the fact that I haven't posted an episode in a while. I have been extraordinarily busy just trying to keep pace with life, and finding time to edit has just been almost impossible. Now, something I've noticed or something I've remarked on is the fact that those people that are listening to the episodes as they're published, as they come out, they're going to notice the delay between the episodes. However, someone listening far, far in the future, all the episodes will be seamless. They're going to come back to back. So... I'm going to pledge that this is the last time I'm going to apologize for any delays in the show. If there are any delays in the show, this is my apology right now. However, this is my spare time initiative and not my full-time job, so I do have to find time to earn a living and keep a roof over the head of my family and myself. So that being said, I'm going to try to keep up a decent schedule. No promises, but as the episodes come out and as I find time to edit, I will be getting those episodes produced for you. Something I am still struggling with is drawing and attracting people. I have a whole bunch of invitations out there with people who perhaps are a little bit too modest to think that their story has any merit or value. But I believe that any story of a Canadian Forces person is valuable and is worth preserving. I am looking for guests. If you know anybody who might make a good guest for the show, someone who's a good speaker, someone who has an interesting story to tell, please get a hold of me, MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com and I would be pleased to record and preserve their story. I do get emails from time to time from people saying, hey, you should interview this guy. He's a really good speaker. He's served at this period of time. And that's great, except for they don't follow up with how to get a hold of the person. I mean, it's great to have a name and and have a point of reference as to when they served, but I need to have their contact information. Those of you who are interested in doing some legwork for me and helping me out, that is much appreciated, but please follow through with a means to get a hold of the person. Once again, I am looking to break out into the Royal Canadian Navy and the Royal Canadian Air Force. It seems it's always easy for me to find Army people to interview. However, breaking into those other services, the Navy and the Air Force, still seem to be a challenge. However, today I'm very lucky to have interviewed someone with Naval Service, and that is the Honorable Bill Graham, who served not only as the Minister of National Defense, but is currently serving as the Honorary Colonel of the Governor General's Horse Guards here in Toronto. Now, Honorary Colonel Bill Graham's period of service is interesting. It is part of the Afghan campaign. He served shoulder-to-shoulder with Rick Hillier as the Minister of National Defense when Rick Hillier was the Chief of Defense Staff. Here's my interview with the Honorable Bill Graham. Honorary Colonel Graham, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mike. Sir, you and I first met at the Leary Valley and Otterloo Mess Dinner in May 2013 in the City of Toronto, and that was hosted by the Governor General's Horse Guards. Right. 
Yes, that's I'm to have the honor of being the honorary colonel of the Horse Guards, and it's been a wonderful experience. And you recall, I mean, I learned so much when you join a regiment and you learn the regimental history. And I always recall at the Leary Valley dinner, we sing the song about the D-Day Dodgers, which was a real eye-opener for me. I'd never known really that history before. And of course, we, I knew something about the Italian campaign. And I just read the wonderful biography by David Halton of his father. And, and going up, the, and when you read about the incredible things the Canadian forces did in that Italian campaign, the fact that somebody was saying that they were trying to get out of heavy fighting somewhere else was pretty high in irony. But that's certainly... It's a wonderful thing when you actually become involved with the regiment by learning about their individual experiences. You get a different perspective on the whole course of the war or the course of their history, and you learn a great deal. Absolutely, and I believe that all of our regiments have a very rich history. We certainly do. And I think that's one of the genesis of this show, so that's great we could tie into that. Excellent. Now, sir, I sent you the questions in advance. Are you all set? Yes, by all means. So we can start with the first question, why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? But you have a couple of times you've come into the role of the Canadian Armed Forces, first as a naval cadet, second as the Minister of National Defence, and once again as an honorary colonel. So how would you like to answer, why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. I guess in case of the first and the last... I joined because I wanted to, in case of the Minister of National Defense, I joined because the Prime Minister phoned me and said, that's what you're going to do. So (laughs) one, I was drafted and two were voluntary. When I went to university in 1958 to 61, I was at Trinity College. And in those days, there was a wonderful program called University Naval Training Division. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, but it really allowed young people who were at university to do training during the year. And then in the summer, you would go either to Spatacona or out to the East Coast or to the West Coast, Naden and Esquimalt, and spend some time on board ship as well as doing other things. So it was a great opportunity to have summer employment. It was a wonderful opportunity to learn and broaden one's experience and also learn about the Navy. And there were quite a few friends of mine in the Navy at the time, and they all said, Bill, you really should do this. It's an extraordinary experience. And I was really forever grateful for the time that I spent in the UNTD. It was great in the winters. We learned a lot. But in the summers, the cadets all got together. It was a great nation-building experience. We had cadets from all across Canada. I made lifelong friends with people from Quebec, from the Maritimes, from Central Canada, people I never otherwise would have met. And we all came out of that really enriched with it. We came out with our commissions as sub-lieutenants. And then some of us stayed in the reserves. Some of us joined the actual forces themselves, but most of us really just retired at that point and went on with our civilian lives. So just to clear it up for the listeners, when you're saying the cadets, you're not talking about the youth citizen program that people join in grade school and high school. You're talking about actually being in the Royal Canadian Navy. We didn't have the equivalency of a midshipman. So when we were on board ship, for example, we slept with the men in the lower deck. We were not in the officer's quarters. But we were treated as sort of a halfway between an officer and the lower decks. And it was an unusual system. When it first started, it was difficult to get incorporated. But by the time I was in it, it was pretty well established. And it was like the, the Army had the COTC, and the, but we had the UNTD. And it was a recognized way in which around there were probably 
about 300 cadets across Canada that would be actively engaged in the two programs on the west and the east coast. And it was an opportunity for all those young men to learn about naval life and get the discipline of the naval life. For me, it was particularly good. I was very fortunate in my early life, and my, I grew up under very, very fortunate circumstances. So the discipline of the experience of the Navy was very helpful to me for the rest of my life, and I, I'm always grateful for it. Right, sir. Now, it's interesting that you say young men, and a lot of the pronouns you're using is male, but I suppose if this program was still in existence now, women would be allowed, but it's an interesting contrast. No, no, absolutely. It was it was exclusively male when we were there, for sure. And the thought of women being on below the decks or being <laughs> serving with them in, in those circumstances on a ship would have been unheard of in my day. And of course, when I became Minister of National Defense, I remember going on a submarine and seeing some women, members of the forces there, just serving like everybody else under very close quarters. And everybody's learned how to deal with that. Or when I was in Afghanistan, talking to the women who were vivid, really, with the troops, everybody is, is an amazing way in which it's evolved in the last, say, 10 or 15 years. But certainly in the 60s, uh, it was not that. It was it was a male business for sure. Absolutely, sir. Would you like to speak about how you became the Minister of National Defense and the Honorary Colonel of the Horse Guards? By all means, I became Minister of National Defense. The Prime Minister spoke to me after Prime Minister Martin became Prime Minister in February 2004. And he told me at the time that while I stayed as his foreign minister, we had a long conversation, and we'd, I'd worked with him on his foreign policy statement, and we both were agreed that while Canada had a tremendous profile internationally, we really had, in the course of cutting the budget cuts that had been necessary to bring the deficit under control, had been very hard on the forces, and that we had to rebuild our armed forces, and if we wanted to have a credible foreign policy, we had to have a credible military to be able to step up and participate in those missions where Canada was expected to do its part. And we were at the point where we were unable to do that. So it was very much a question of, did we want to have a foreign policy which was robust? And I used to say that we're a country and we're flying on one wing. We're like an aircraft with one wing. We've got a great foreign policy. We've got International Criminal Court. We have all these developments that are Canada's. We've got tremendous credit at the United Nations and around the world for, for our aid policy. But we've allowed our military to slip, and we have to rebuild that second engine. And so he said to me, fine, well, great, you're going to be the guy that has to do that. So I was then, he said, in June of that year, he phoned me up, they did cabinet shuffle, and he said, I want you to become the defense minister, and I want you to rebuild the department. And for those who know that recent history, they'll know that I then recruited Rick Hedier to become the chief of the defense staff. We produced a defense review, which I then took to the prime minister and the finance minister and said, this has to be funded. And we got the largest single funding in the history of the Canadian forces of an increase of $13 billion in the commitment to the forces that year. So I had that wonderful experience of being defense minister of this country and working with the men and women of our armed forces. And it's just an extraordinary privilege to travel and work for those people, whether they were in Afghanistan or whether it was in Suffolk or whether it was in Wainwright or whether it was up north in the Arctic or whether it was on ships out of Victoria or out of Halifax. This is an unbelievable asset that our country has, and it's largely driven by people in it that are both talented but also really dedicated to the good of the country. It was It's an extraordinary experience. Absolutely, sir. And I will tell you one funny story about being Minister of National Defense that you would appreciate, Mike, and Certainly. some of your audience would. That, that as you know, at the mess dinners, we would have mess dinners, and 
at the mess dinners, there's always played, the regimental marches are played and everybody stands up for their march. So when they play Hearts of Oak, I would stand up and Rick would say to me, sit down, minister, you're not, you're not in the Navy, you're not allowed to do that, you're, you're, you're neutral. I said, no, no, and Admiral Bach would say, no, no, stand up, minister, you're, you're one of us. So we had these, uh, so we had a lot of fun. There's a wonderful thing about the forces. People know not only that they're engaged in very serious work, but they know how to how to get together and enjoy one another's company and have fun. And we had a lot of fun when we were when I, when I was minister. I had a great team around me, and it was a great opportunity to go around and travel around the country and work with people. Absolutely, sir. And how about your encounter with the horse guards? Well, when I stepped down from public life. Hal Jackman, who'd been a, an honorary colonel at the Horse Guards and various other members of the Horse Guards family, took me to lunch and said to me, look, this would be a wonderful opportunity. We've all considered this a great privilege. It's a remarkable regiment with a remarkable history. And would you consider becoming the honorary colonel? And the system is quite good with the Horse Guards. Normally what you do is you serve for three years as the honorary lieutenant colonel to kind of relearn the ropes. And then you become the honorary colonel, and we kind of we kind of switch it between an honorary colonel who will come from the civilian side, someone like myself, and then an honorary who's actually coming up through the military itself, usually somebody who's maybe even commanded the regiment before or something like that. So right. you kind of have a nice combination. So when I was an honorary lieutenant colonel, David Friesen was the honorary colonel, so he sort of taught me the ropes, and he'd been the colonel of the regiment previously, and, and I stepped in as the honorary colonel, and uh, we had a wonderful honorary lieutenant colonel jeff dorfman who's prince of a guy and who'd been also commander of the regiment and unfortunately he died last year of cancer so yes absolutely um, i was very sad but jeff was taught me a lot and so that was another that was a different dimension mike it was funny because people said well why would you do that and i said well it was so interesting because when i was defense minister you're sitting in ottawa on your ordering ships and planes, trying to figure out <laughs> procurement, trying to figure out what are you going to do here. Whereas when you're actually with the regiment and you go up to go up and watch maneuvers and things like that, you're actually worried about guys in a truck and how are they going to be all right. <laughs> totally different set of experiences. It's equally important, but you get to see things from a different lens. Certainly. And one of my regrets is I didn't get to capture the story of Honorary Colonel Dorfman and I did have appointments booked with him. Unfortunately, he was too sick to take the call. And, oh, I'm very sorry that that because he yeah. did. He was he. He would have given the audience some great insights. He was a lovely man. He really was a very Absolutely. remarkable person. Now, sir, what was the world like when you joined? And we can stick to your experience in the cadets in the Navy program. Well, with the world I joined, of course, '58 through to '61. I mean, we're talking about the Cold War. It was very much you were learning. We were learning how to out of run a ship really but the purpose of the ship was to it was quite quite i would say still based on a lot of world war ii experiences we were very much concerned obviously with submarine anti-submarine activities in the canadian navy we didn't have any submarines ourselves but we had the fresh of the convoy duty and things like that from world war ii so on the east coast for example when we went when we went on our cruise, we went down to Norfolk, Virginia, worked in training missions with the Americans as part of the NATO exercises, things like that. Everything was pretty well focused on that. I would say that the Navy then was largely focused on the Atlantic. And that's because of the Russian threat. I right. mean, perhaps we 
we should have had. Uh, the Arctic was closed in those days. So, I mean, the idea of double-hulled ships in the Arctic and things like that, which we're now coming around to, would have been was unrealistic at that time. So, really, the Arctic was an Air Force business, and we had the forward staging bases and things like that for the CF-18s and for the whole of, and the dew line and alert and all that. But that was, so that really was not a Navy preoccupation. I would say the Navy's focus in the, at that time was very much North Atlantic, not so much the Pacific. Right. And what were you like when you joined, sir? Well, I was just a freshman. I was just a kid. I was a freshman <laughs> at university. So more interested in beer and girls than <laughs> what a lot of other things and just learning. But we had, there was a, there was quite a contingent at Trinity. One of the guys ahead of me, Hal Davies, who subsequently stayed in the Navy and retired as a, as a captain huh? many years later and was quite a famous person in the Navy, actually. <laughs> but Hal Davies was the cadet captain in the Navy, and he's the one that kind of said to me, Bill, you really should do this. And I was really glad I did. A lot of people went into fraternities and things like that at the university. For some of us, the Navy was that was our, our kind of our fraternity. It was right. something we did once a week down at York. We, we were learning something. As I said, it was a terrific experience, but it was really sort of peer group, not pressure, but peer group encouragement that encouraged me to right. join. Hal was quite a character, and we had a lot of fun at the university together, but I was really glad he got me into the Navy. Now, sir, what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Well, uh, there's no question, going back to being Minister of National Defense, my greatest achievement was, I think, in getting the single largest budget increase that the forces have ever seen in one year from the Finance Department. Believe me, Mike, that was not easy. <laughs> the history had been of previous defense reviews. You recall Perrin Beattie did one in the 80s, very ambitious, nuclear subs, and everything. It was all shot down by the finance department. They didn't get the money, and so the whole thing became a fiasco. And there had been several defense reviews of that nature, and I just went to the prime minister and said, listen, we've done this now. Here's the proposal. We worked through, here's this plan that we created. Here are the types of forces that will deliver you with the opportunity to reinforce our foreign policy. And but it has to be funded. And originally, the finance department was very reluctant. They said, well, maybe next year or the next year. And I said, if that happens, then everybody's going to consider this review just like the rest, and it's not going to be taken seriously. And we're not going to have either what we need to get the forces modernized and changed, but we won't be able to deliver on these foreign policy objectives, which we say are important. So we went back, and we actually got the monies. And so that was a lot of political pushing and shoving, but that was certainly, I was extremely proud of being able to achieve that right. as a minister. Do you have a memorable experience, or is it all tied into your achievement? I mean, we had some pretty memorable experiences when I was <laughs> when I was a cadet. I mean, obviously on board ship, you'd do some crazy things and got into problems <laughs> and things like that. So we had a lot of youth youth time, youthful experiences. But I would say my most memorable experiences really were, of course, when I became Minister of National Defense. I mean, to go to Kandahar and visit our troops in Kandahar. I mean, Mike, I. I went to Kandahar in 1960. I drove with a friend of mine in England, and we drove through all the way through Europe and to India and back. Wow. And I was in Kandahar in 1960. I was in Baluchistan. I was shot at by guys in <laughs> Baluchistan. So, like, to go back and be with the troops and right there in, in Kandahar and see the same city I'd seen in 1960 and talk to our troops and find out what they were doing. And then Rick Hillier and I got on a helicopter and went to visit Graceland, which is where the JTF-2 were based, that was just, that was incredible. I mean, you could, nobody, it's hard to relive that type of experience.
it's hard to believe to see the old tourism posters and brochures from Afghanistan. People have posted them online to think that they had a tourism industry, modern clothing. And yeah, well, yeah, there weren't many. We didn't run into many tourists driving around <laughs> Afghanistan when I was there in 1960, I'll tell you. But there were, And but what was really interesting was that I mean, it was quite, I don't say it was prosperous because the town didn't look much different from when I was there in 1960, but it never was wildly prosperous. But there were, there were very pretty wooden homes and they had gardens and the Afghans were, had a very, they had quite lush agricultural production, much of it based on irrigation that went back 2,000 years. And all of that stuff was blown up during the Soviet occupation. So right. it was a total destruction of, a, of the basis of a civil society. And that was what's so devastating to see. But to see our troops there helping rebuild was something. And to learn about how our troops operated, I mean, I can't tell you how proud I was when a British brigadier in Kabul said to me, oh, he said, we love having the Canadian troops here because they go out, they go beyond what they have to do. And I learned from talking to a young captain in the, in the Patricias, in the Princess Patricias, how there was a an orphanage not very far from Camp Julien. And with these young girls, they were fairly exposed. And the woman running the orphanage was quite worried because there were men around and who not necessarily with good intentions. And so a group of these, of our young men and women would just go in the patrol cars and on off duty, they'd go and drive around there and go and visit two or three times a day. And that kept the whole thing safe. But they just volunteered to do that. That wasn't something they had to do. It had nothing to do with their business. But it was kind of an evidence of the type of thing that our forces do that make them extremely popular on these types of missions. They, they're willing to reach out and recognize that if you're going to be successful in the mission, you've got to establish with the civilian population a good relationship. And when I went to Kandahar, the same thing. I got all sorts of stories from the local governor and others how our guys would go the extra mile to reach out to make that human contact that, in fact, made the mission able to achieve what it had to do, which was more than just pacify, but also help build governance and help rebuild the society. I have to agree with you, sir, that we did the same thing in Sierra Leone. We helped out scout camps and orphanages ourselves, just whether it was shoveling or whether it was hiring a contractor or whatever. Well beyond our orders, well beyond the scope of our mission, but still just the goodwill gesture from the Canadian forces to the locals. Well, good for you because I mean, I, but but very gratifying, don't you think? I mean, yeah, to get the uh, get the feedback from everybody, and it makes you realize that you're really doing something really important there. So, rather, there's lots of forces I talked to the people they were just sitting in the uh, in the caserne and not going out for fear of security and other reasons or discipline or things like that. So, right. I was everywhere I went. It wasn't just I agree with you. It wasn't just Afghanistan. I mean, when I was in Bosnia, our guys were running got a local newspaper paper going, uh, produced a bit of the band, produced some music that got people in the local community thinking, you know, we've got a life again. They're doing all sorts of stuff, mine clearance, things that were well beyond what you, military duties, but right. what we're rebuilding the local society. And that's one of the remarkable things our troops are, are able to do. And I think it's, I think it's, it's sort of a, it's a Canadian trait and a Canadian characteristic, and our troops are known for doing that. And that's, that's a remarkable thing that Canada benefits from that as a country. Absolutely, without a doubt. Yep. Sir, we can move on. So who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? And I certainly think you must have met quite a few influences and memorable characters. Yeah, yeah, I would have to say, but certainly if we're going to talk about the armed forces, I mean, 
you have to put Rick Hillier pretty high up there. There's no question about it. Rick, working with Rick was an extraordinary privilege, and he was a great commander and a wonderful, a wonderful commander, really. And he not only had a way of mobilizing the troops and inspiring them, but he also had a deep intellectual sense about the nature of what the challenges were and what we had to do in terms of the equipment and the organization necessary to deliver it. I mean, it, it's like all military operations are logistics, and he had a good sense of not only what we had to do with the logistical side of it. But I'll tell you also, in the department when I was there, was a remarkable man by the name of Ron Buck, who, talk about logistics, I mean, he knew every piece of rope and every bullet and every gun and every missile and every radar. I mean, Ron was an extraordinarily competent vice chief of the staff and, and really made the place hum. So when I was there, I was, I was very lucky. We had great leadership of the forces, and that makes everybody's job a lot easier. All right, sir. Sir, what was the greatest challenge you had to overcome? Well, as I would have said, the greatest challenge certainly was the challenge of, fine, you can produce a defense review and you can have all these ideas, but to get the political support necessary to fund it and do it in a town where everybody else is fighting for scarce resources, that is the biggest challenge. And it's the challenge, it remains the challenge of the forces today. I mean, it seems to me if we look at the of the forces today, the big challenge is the procurement challenge, right. the, to get the type of modern equipment we need. I mean, this is a, it's embarrassing that we still haven't got the search and rescue aircraft after 12 years. I mean, in the Arctic, I mean, as it becomes more and more necessary, the fact that we're still sending Hercs up from Trenton, I mean, it's just insane, and helicopters from aside. So this is a big challenge. And I noticed the latest budget, I think the, the capital budget's around 12 or 14%. It should be around 25%. We should be buying much more effective of equipment and having, if we're going to send our, our men and women in harm's way abroad, we better make sure they're properly equipped for the job. And that was a challenge in my day as well, because when we did the Afghan mission, we had a certain view of how it should be done. And you'll appreciate we had lab threes and we had the various vehicles that we thought were appropriate, but the Taliban then resorted to using the IEDs, blowing up the roads. I mean, we were using tanks that we, we felt we didn't want to have at the beginning of the mission, and so I mean, right. we had to change that tags. We had to reacquire helicopters. So in the challenge of the forces is, is constantly adapting, and the great challenge now, of course, is that a lot of this modern equipment is extraordinarily expensive because it's all right. so high-tech. So I used to say, people say to me, oh, well, you recruit people, and you do this, and they do that. I said, listen, those young men and women that are driving those Lab 3s, they're not just driving it. There's computer-operated weapons systems in there that are extraordinarily complicated. This is a very That's sophisticated right. business. It's the same thing on board ship. The missile systems and everything else, it's one thing. The ship's just the platform. It's all <laughs> that extraordinarily expensive equipment, and all of that stuff's expensive. And getting the right stuff and getting it through politically, through the process of getting it approved and getting the finance department on side and getting them get the budget through and then getting it through Treasury Board, all of these are things the politicians have to do, and that was my job as Minister of Defense. That's not, in our system, that's not an easy job because the procurement side of the business is, frankly, is the worst, worst thing we're, we do at the moment. That's true. Well, I was certainly impressed by the speed at which new equipment was brought online to meet the demands of the complex nature of Afghanistan. 
And I was blown away by, we need this, and then suddenly the soldiers had it, and that was very impressive. Well, I'm glad you were able to say that, Mike, because really, <laughs> when I first went there, I mean, but I went first when we were in Kabul, so I was foreign minister, and Andy Leslie was there, and we still were driving around the Yiltis Jeep. Right. You know, and people would say to me, Minister, I said, well, well, that's the defense minister's problem. I'm, <laughs> what do I know about this? We had to get rid of some of that stuff pretty right. quick. Anyway. <laughs> now, sir, what's next for you? Well, my wife says I'm failing retirement, so there you are. I'm, <laughs> so whatever, I'm, I'll soon, unfortunately, my term with the horse guards will come to an end soon, and we'll have a new honorary colonel, but I'll always be associated with the regiment Certainly. now, and that's another great thing. You become a member of a family when you do something like that, so that'll be my family forever. And I'm the chancellor here at Trinity College, and I do some some business and some and some work at the university. So there's lots of things to, to stimulate and keep me busy. <laughs> Sir, I'd like to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode and summarize your service to the Canadian Forces. Well, I like to feel, in many ways, I consider it a great privilege. Every part of the being with the Forces, I don't feel a service to the Forces. For me, I feel that I've got more out of the experience than I've put into it. I think it's true for the men and women that are actually serving in the field, risking their lives or doing the things they do to make it work. They are in the service. For those of us like myself who've been privileged to come in from the outside and be a part of it, it's really the experience of learning about it and seeing it in operation that, that's incredible. And I, I just have to repeat what I said earlier, that a lot of people said to me, Bill, you're an international lawyer, you're, you're a naturalist, foreign affairs minister, but I mean, defense minister, what on earth is that? And I said, well, I love being defense minister more than I love being foreign minister. It was, was just the experience of it and the challenge and, and the diversity of our armed forces. I mean, to go to Suffield and see the nuclear and chemical and biological defense, just that alone. But then to go to the Arctic and then go east and west and see our forces as they operate here and go down to the states and see the complexity of their system and how we're integrated in North American defense and then to travel abroad and see our forces, how they operate abroad and how respected they are for what they do for our country. That's I wish I can only wish that every Canadian could be so lucky. <laughs> well, I believe that's one of our key attributes is the respect that members of the Canadian Forces have earned, not only at home, but throughout the world. Absolutely. I want to thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the show. And I look forward to meeting you. Should I be invited to any future Governor General's Horse Guards events? Absolutely, Mike. Well, I look forward to seeing you. You do come. We'll treat you with the hospitality we give everybody. Absolutely, sir. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Bye then. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. 
End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.